Thank you for checking out this episode of Christianity Still Makes Sense with Dr. Bobby Conway. This is a portion of a sermon delivered at Image Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. To hear the full message, head over to imagechurch.live and click watch. Hope you enjoy. Steve Jobs, when he was alive, loved classical music, and he really loved the great Yo-Yo Ma, who plays the cello. In fact, on one occasion, he threw a party, and he invited Yo-Yo Ma over to the Apple dinner party, and it was there that Yo-Yo Ma got out his 1733 Stradivarius, and he started to play it so beautifully that when he was done, Jobs would tell Ma, he said, you playing on the cello makes me believe in the existence of God. He said, there's no way anybody could play this so beautifully without a creator. Now, granted, though Jobs uh, would die as a Buddhist, what he had to say was powerful. He was so stirred by the way that Yo-Yo Ma played the cello that he wanted him to play at his funeral when he died. And Yo-Yo Ma agreed to do so, and that promise was kept as he busted out the cello at Steve Jobs' funeral. Similarly, when you think about us as Christians, you know, Jesus gave us something to consider that's very powerful, and it's this. He said, When we love the way that we're meant to, it gives evidence and proof to the world of the existence of God. It points beyond us to something bigger than us. In the same way that Yo-Yo Ma playing the cello pointed beyond him to the creator of the cellist for Steve Jobs, so too Jesus was saying that if you love one another, It will show the world that you are really my disciples because Jesus was inviting us to experience a new kind of mission. He was inviting us to live different than the way we did before we were Christians. And the impact of him loving us is to impact the way that we love others. And therefore, that love is supposed to become something tangible that points beyond ourselves to God. In fact, Jesus said, the world will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, that's a big statement right there because what he was saying is essentially, if you don't love one another, then you are going to give the world a reason to reject me and maybe even not think that I exist. That's how important this ingredient is. In fact, on one occasion, when Jesus was asked if he could sum up the law, he summed up everything that the Bible would have to stand for by saying, it all comes down to this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's as if to say, if we miss what it means to love God and love our neighbor, we miss it all. We miss the point of life. Now, there's more to life than just love, but we don't experience the essence of life without love. Francis Schaeffer, who died in 1984, he was 
a great Christian apologist. Now, the word apologist comes from the Greek word apologia, and it means to give a defense. So a Christian apologist is one who is trained to give a defense of the reliability and truthfulness of Christianity. And they're typically trained in understanding different world philosophies, different world religions, and they're able to say, this is why Christianity is the best explanation in light of the different worldview options that are out there. And so Francis Schaeffer, as a great Christian apologist, he would say this statement as he would talk about Jesus' words. Upon Jesus' authority, he gives the world the right to judge whether you or I are born-again Christians on the basis of our observable love toward all Christians. If people come up to us and cast in our teeth the judgment that we are not Christians because we have not shown love toward other Christians, we must understand that they are only exercising a prerogative which Jesus gave them. That's an indictment right there. So there's something about us that we have to rise above what we understand love to be in our contemporary Western culture. Love is so much bigger than a feeling. Love is a verb. Love is an action. And our love will be tested, the, the genuineness of it. Love is hard work, as it once been said. So hard, we're never entitled to take a break. We're always called to love. On one occasion, Jesus was asked, how many times should we forgive? Seven times? And he said, no, seven times 70. So you run the math and you're like, oh, okay, so uh, 491 times I can write a person off. Well, no, that's not the way we're to understand that. What Jesus was trying to say is we are to love people unconditionally, which means that we need to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. And guess what? God will allow you and I to get hurt in life so that we can become like Jesus and forgive. And we can't be forgiving people unless we get hurt in life. So we have to be hurt so that we can forgive, so that we can become like Jesus, so that we can love. But there comes a point in life, if we're being honest, it can happen in our marriage, it can happen with our kids, it can happen with our parents, it can happen with our friends, where sometimes we get offended so much that we think that we actually can change the standard for love because now we're gonna write this person off but we don't have that option as Christians. This is the greatest way we show what love is. And then there are people who have been so hurt by a lack of love that they don't trust. They don't give their heart to anybody. They protect it. They box it up because they're scared to love. In fact, C.S. Lewis put it like this. The great atheist turned theist, turned Christian, said to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. In my 
book, the fifth gospel, I lay out a little bit of what it would look like for us as a church to love. And I write like this. Love that person who rubs you the wrong way. Love the unfaithful, the immature, the obnoxious teenager, the grumpy father-in-law, the noisy neighbor, the nosy neighbor, the fruitcake-making old aunt, the unfair boss, the inconsistent friend, the lazy worker, the worrying wife, the hateful husband, the wannabe hipster, the argumentative church member, the unruly two-year-old, the angry atheist, the bitter, unattractive single woman, the unwise college student, the snippy sister-in-law. Love them, Jesus says. No, really, show them who I really am by bringing some agape their way. Jesus calls us to love with some sloppy agape. And so the word that we're going to look at as you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13, this magnum opus on love in all of the Bible, it's the word agape. And agape is the word that is, that is used for love here, and it is a love without strings attached. It is an unconditional love. It is a love that knows no boundaries in the sense that Yes, there might be boundaries to protect the relationship, but there's not boundaries that we feel entitled to no longer love a person. And so this type of love is a unconditional, beautiful, God-like love in the way in which God loves us. It's the love that you see in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It's the love, agape style, that you see in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, it wasn't as if his love was based on conditions of us living up to his standard, but rather... God's love comes to us despite the fact that we've all broken the moral standard. And that's what's so beautiful about Christianity. God doesn't say, step up and meet all my moral demands and then I'll love you. No, he steps into our world and says, every one of you have broken the moral demands. All of you are imperfect. All of you fall short of my glory and I still choose you. He pursues us with agape love. It's the gospel. It's what's so beautiful. And it's grace that sets Christianity apart from all other religions. All other religions are duty-based. Do this, and then maybe you'll be forgiven. But Christianity is a done religion. It's D-O-N-E. It's been finished. It's been accomplished. To Telestai, Jesus said, it is finished. God's riches at Christ's expense is grace. And, then we can, and we can receive that because of what Jesus did. And so the Bible, it has different words for love, like storge, which would be a familial love, or phileo, like Philadelphia, which comes from two Greek words, phileo and adelphos. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Or eros, which is sexual love. But agape, what's up with that? That's unconditional love. That's the love of God that gets shed abroad in our heart. That's the love of God that's available to you this morning. Would you like to taste it? Would you like to enter into a relationship with a God 
that loves you more than you could ever love anybody in your life? Would you like to be loved by a God that understands you through and through, understands everything you've ever done wrong, understands all of your intricacies, understands you better than you understand yourself? A God who welcomes you a seat at his table of fellowship? Would you like to enter into that kind of relationship? A God who will never give up on you? A God who can't get enough of you? A God who loves you so much that he accepts you right where you are, but he won't leave you where you are. He'll send you on a transformational mission so that people can see what he's done in your life. And you know what? That's the secret to change. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. The reason we sin is not because we have a sin problem. The core of our sin problem is we have a God-loving problem. We don't love God enough so we choose ourselves and we sin. But the solution to our sin is to fall in love with God. The solution to our idolatry is to fall in love with God. Fall in love with God and you will find freedom from sin. Then you will know the truth, Jesus said, and the truth will make you free. But in English, we got one word for love, and that's love. So what do we do with that you know, word that can be boring sometimes, right? And overused. Well, we have to say, I love you madly, or I am passionately in love with you. We got to add some adjectival usage to the great word love. But in the Greek, we see the special love that Paul wants to talk to us about today. He takes what's often black and white to us, and he gets out his brush, and he paints so colorfully for us a description of love that we'll see. So pick up with me, if you will, in chapter 12, verse 31, because what Paul has just done is he's talking about spiritual gifts. And you know this church at Corinth is jacked up. This is a highly dysfunctional group of people. These are gossips, backbiters, doctrinal heretics. They're getting inebriated off of communion. You got a dude sleeping with his stepmom. I mean, this church is straight up debauched. They're reprobates in so many ways, and they're divisive over their gifts. They're in power struggles. They're following the ways of their culture. They're total hedonists. And so what ends up happening is Paul, he's like, you guys are dividing over gifts and all this. He says, I'm gonna show you a more excellent way than the gifts. And that excellent way is gonna be love. So chapter 13, verse one, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, right? But have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So Paul is basically saying this, love, right, minus, right, any of these things is what? It's worthless, right? No. All these things minus love is worthless. You can have all of these qualities, but if we don't love, it's worthless. And this is so important. Like if there's anything that we would want to capture in the Bible is that God loves you and that he wants us to love him and to love others. 
And this love is not easy to do. That's why we have to get a right understanding of what biblical love is, because if we don't have the right view of biblical love, we'll fall into some kind of a romantic Hollywood love, and that love will disillusion you over and over and over again, because true love will break your heart. True love hurts. True love is hard work. It's so hard, and we don't get the right to just check out on agape love because it gets hard. In fact, God will test us in the love department. He will test us to see if we genuinely love him. He will test us to see if we genuinely love others. And it's this that becomes our greatest message to the world when we love one another. But we can't love one another in the way that God wants us to love them unless we learn how to love God. And the way that we got to learn to love God is the way that God loves us. And the way that God loved us wasn't easy. He, he's loving somebody like myself that forgets about him, that wanders from him, that sins against him, even though I know I've been forgiven, that will reject him, that will take my life into my own hands from time and time again, that my heart will get hard and stubborn. And that's the way This God loves us unconditionally, agape style. He loves all of us that way. He loves us to a cross as the great hound of heaven. And he's put on a cross while everybody's abandoned him. Think about his last 12 hours of life. Judas betrays him. The disciples abandon him. The Romans scourge him with whips and beat him silly. The Jews mock him. He feels forsaken by the Father. That's the kind of agape that he was doing to give you a relationship with him. He wanted us to experience through the reading of God's word all of the rejection that he would go through so that we would have a picture of love branded, tattooed on our heart that we would never forget so that we would find the motivation to live for him. And that motivation comes out of a good, hearty meditation on the cross, gospel style. And so, this Savior that loves us is amazing. And he wants us to learn to love others with his love. And the only way we're gonna be able to love like Jesus is to look at the way that Jesus loved us. And so, what's he say? Basically, love, you could have all the words in the world, but if you don't love, right, don't mean much. You can be articulate and eloquent, but minus love, it means very precious little. You can have prophetic powers. You can, you can have all this knowledge. You can be brilliant. You can be a great erudite, but without love, it's cheap. You can have all the faith to remove mountains, the big deal. If you don't love, it's empty. You can be sacrificial. You can can be out being involved in philanthropy, giving stuff away, but it's really not about love. It's about you getting a reputation for how generous you are. And that doesn't really mean much to God because what God's interested in is us glorifying him with our lives. You can even be sacrificial, right? Give your body up to be burned. And if you don't have love, it means nothing. Think about the terrorists on 9-11. 
sacrificially, they thought, giving up their bodies. For what? For themselves, so that they could get all those virgins that are going to present raisins to them, which, by the way, you can hold off on the raisins, right? I mean, what's that going to motivate people for? <laughs> get your raisins here, right? But this is a picture of what love is like. It's worth chewing on. It's worth meditating on. I, I mean, imagine if we could be a church like this that gives each other the benefit of the doubt, that forgives each other, that chooses to have a positive attitude toward one another instead of always being critical. Well, why did he do this? Why did he overlook this? Why did she do this? Why did she not say this? Well, why do we always assume people's reactions are always about us? Sometimes people are just having a hard day. Give them a benefit of the doubt. Like, this will transform church. This will transform our relationships. Just a little olive branch relationally instead of always thinking the worst, assuming the worst. Some people are so critical that love can't reach their heart. And the reason love can't reach their heart is because they second-guess everything the other person does. They're sitting in judgment. They're the ones with all the great, grandiose observations telling everybody else what you do wrong. If we could only be more like you, right? But that's not the way to live. What would it be like when we hear negativity coming toward one another? What if we just stood in that person's shoes or have you ever had a negative attitude? Have you ever just been in a bad mood? And all of a sudden you start going, yeah, I mean, I've, been, I've had a bad mood before and I've had a negative attitude. It'll transform the way we do life. But we have these expectations. Oh, he didn't say hi to me. He didn't smile at me. He hasn't called me. He hasn't texted me. He didn't do this. He didn't do that. He didn't do this. And expectations will crush a church. We start putting the strings in place for how we're to treat one another. And Jesus says, what if you just focus on you pleasing me by loving me and you focus on just loving people? And what if you went through life saying, I'm just gonna be a grace giver. I'm gonna show unconditional love. I'm gonna be a forgiver. I'm gonna learn to see the benefit of the doubt in others. Guess what? You're gonna be the kind of person everybody's gonna wanna be around. Man, I wanna be around that kind of person. You want to hang out with an individual like that. That's my daughter, right? I mean, she, is, she walks in the house and a song, she starts singing. She sings around the house. She is the most joyful human being, honestly, that I've ever known in my entire life. And I raised her and my wife raised her. I mean, it's, it'll make you sick sometimes, but it's like, it's like, no wonder I, I sink into depression like when she goes away. It's like she keeps some joy in the house, right? She leaves, well, I better up my antidepressants, right? Like, I mean, she is good medicine. And if you know her, I, I mean, you know, I, and I'm sure some people can look at her and go, oh, this can't be real. This can't, I'm, well, I'm her father and I've never seen anything like it. God gave her that gift of joy. People want to be around people that are optimistic, that, 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 that are like that. The hardest kind of people to be around are those that are always just beat down. You ever just get around people? They're always beat down. You just get with them, they're beat down. And it's just like, I mean, you know, honestly, you, if you, if you, and you know what ends up happening to the person who's always beat down? They get frustrated because people don't come near them, but it's because they're being avoided because they know that they're just gonna get, a, a, 
the, the bad report. It's so bad, it's so bad, it's so bad, it's so bad. And then all of a sudden, people don't want to be around that kind of a person, right? But that person thinks everybody else is messed up. We want to be a loving church. I remember when I was preaching in Clinton, Arkansas, and I showed out bedecked with my suit and tie uh, in this Baptist church, uh, and it was traditional. And I don't know, uh, how old were we, baby? Uh, at 23, 24. And I would travel around the state of Arkansas because my bride's from there, and preaching in these little churches. And I would preach in the morning. A lot of times we'd just sleep in the pews throughout the day and wait for the evening service. And the evening service would come and we would preach again. And we'd drive two hours there, two hours back. We'd get a $50 per diem, uh, you know. So it was like, uh, thank you so much. I took care of the gas, right? Uh, you know, so we're like this. I definitely preached in some churches that were into the poverty gospel for pastors. Thank you for checking out this episode of Christianity Still Makes Sense. This show is just one of the many resources available to those who are doubting their Christian faith. You can also find others at ChristianityStillMakesSense.com. This is a listener-supported show, and your gift of any amount helps shows like this continue. Click on the donate link on our website. Also, catch Bobby on Pastor's Perspective, where he answers your questions. Finally, if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to click subscribe and check out our other videos on the channel. This show was sponsored by K-Wave and Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa.